Hello and welcome to Beth Takoon and the Spiritual Season Study, where we are opening up the weekly Torah portions with the help of God's overall pattern of salvation seen in the calendar and beyond. This week we are in Parsha Devarim, the first portion in the fifth and final book of the Torah, which is also called Devarim or Deuteronomy in English. The first portion in the book is chapters 1 through most of chapter 3. Devarim means words. The title comes from the first verse of the book, which reads, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arava opposite Suf, beyond Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazarot, and Dizahab. So we're given all these place names as the context for Moses' words to Israel. Nearly the entire book is Moses' parting words to the people, and this people that he had sacrificed so much of his life to shepherd. In the final chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, he's taken from them, and at the start of the next book, which is Joshua, the people cross into the promised land without Moses. Tradition says that it took Moses a little over a month to deliver the words of Deuteronomy to the people. The Quixote Comish says there are two great interwoven threads in the book, right? Two threads running through the whole thing. The first is Moses' exhortations to the people to remain faithful to God and his Torah. And the second is a review of much of the legal subject matter first explained in the earlier books. Since this legal content is repetition, the book is sometimes called Mishneh Torah, a repetition of the Torah. And this is where we get our English word Deuteronomy from, which means second law or repetition of the law. The key difference between Deuteronomy and the previous four books of the Torah is that with this final book of the Torah, for the first time, God's law is being translated through a human being, Moses. And so we could say that Moses basically transcribed the other books, right? God told him what to put, and he put those, that word for word. Here in Deuteronomy, Moses is taking it upon himself to explain the Torah in his own words. And so some have called Deuteronomy the beginning of the oral law. In this first portion of the book, Moses begins his repetition with a review of how God told them to leave Mount Horeb and go up to take the land. Moses chooses to insert here that at that time, he assigned a leadership structure for the nation with commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, along with officers. He goes on to recount how the people embraced the evil report of the ten spies and failed to go into the land at that time, resulting in the punishment of the remainder of the 40-year journey in the wilderness until that generation passed away. Moses sums up 38 years, basically, after that failure on the, on the border of the land. He sums up the whole next 38 years with two quick poetic lines like this. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days, we traveled around Mount Seir. 38 years. Yes, many days indeed. So Moses continues then. Then the Lord said to me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. 
turn northward. Chapter 2 goes on to detail how Israel passed through, or they tried to pass through, the descendants of Esau and Lot, uh, the people from Lot being the Moabites and the Ammonites. So Esau, the Ammonites, and the Moabites. And so these were all relatives, and God had promised each of them certain territories that would not you know, come to belong to Israel. So Israel was not to make war against any of them. The Amorites, not Ammonites, but Amorites, who were east of the Jordan, that's a different story. And so don't confuse um, Amorite with Ammonite. The Ammonites and Moabites, again, were the descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot, while the Amorites were a Canaanite group. And so the Amorites lived on both sides of the Jordan, and the ones to the east side, who Moses runs up against, are the kingdoms of Sihon and Og. The rest of the portion um, of Devarim describes how Sihon and Og came against Israel, and with God's help, Israel destroyed them, with Moses eventually granting their lands to the two-and-a-half Transjordan tribes. What sort of sticks out to us here in uh, the repetition of these historical events is that the text includes some commentary and some translations will even put this what feels like extra commentary in parentheses in the text. And so these comments usually explain a bit about the groups that used to live in this area or that area, but were defeated by Israel's relatives or by Israel themselves, especially the former inhabitants that were regarded as giants. In fact, the text seems almost preoccupied with these giants. Before we get into the calendar connections and the portion itself, let's notice here that Moses is really emphasizing the idea of authority and leadership at the beginning of this book. It seems downright strange that in beginning this retelling, Moses' first point is that after God tells them to leave Mount Sinai, Moses pause to appoint a system of leaders over the nation. And this was from the advice of Jethro, his father-in-law. So why is this appointing of leaders the first thing that Moses mentions in this giant month-long speech? So to be sure, this was a radical change for the nation, a great structuring that they didn't have before. It must have brought a lot of order to some chaos. And... um, One thing Moses is doing here, I think, in mentioning this first is saying, when I'm gone and you pass into the land, don't let this authority system lapse. It's a backbone and a source of strength for you. And without it, you will be weak and easily fall to your enemies. Grant points out that if leaders are appointed over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, you've got, if we're dealing with over 600,000 men, you've got about 78,600 men in positions of authority. And that's about 13% of all the men, all the fighting age men. He says, Grant says, this type of authority structure is like an internal nervous system for a body. And he adds, authority is very close to God's heart. Well, beyond these practicalities of organizing the body of Israel, on another level, By making this appointing of leaders the first item he emphasizes, Moses is hinting here to the heart of the Torah. 
and the key to the fullness of life in the land. So what's the key to having the full life in the land once they cross over? Servant leadership. Israel is to be a nation of priests, right? Moses is thinking, well, you're going to go into the land and you're going to become what God promised you would be. When they get into the land, um, the nation will become that beacon uh, to the other nations, that beacon of light and that nation of priests. And priests are servant leaders. So in a certain way, we are all called to be servant leaders. This idea is the essence of Yeshua's life on earth. By laying down his life as servant to all, he becomes the leader of all, the one before whom every knee will bow. It is in servant leadership that our light really shines. And recall that the center stalk, the center of God's pattern for shining light, that is the menorah, is called the shamish, which means both servant and son, S-U-N. So in Hebrew, the source of light in our universe, the sun, is also the word for servant. Think about that when you look at the sun, that that's um, the biggest servant among the heavenly bodies there. Before we head deeper into the book of Devarim and this portion, let's take some time to talk about the new month we have just entered, Tuesday night, this last Tuesday night, and that is the month of Av. Having a little understanding of the month will help to set the stage for further insights into the Parsha. So first, Av means father, and the mazel of the month is Leo, the lion. In Jewish thinking, the lion is emblematic of overwhelming power and even punishment. And so there is something of a connection between the idea of father and the lion. Within the family unit, The father is sort of the the center of that strict authority and in some ways the final repository of power and discipline, right? How many times does the mother say, just wait till your father comes home? (laughs) So, So this is a month that at its beginning, at least the beginning of the month, is very top down, a month in which God shows himself to be powerful in a disciplinary way. So in many ways, Av is the complement of Nisan, the first month. And um, Nisan is also called Aviv in the Bible, right? So the first month, Aviv, the fifth month that we have just now entered, Av, Aviv and Av. And so you can hear the similarity there. But whereas the mazel of the first month is the lamb, the mazel of the fifth month is the lion, So this month is the lion complement to the lamb. Of course, we do see this lion side of God, particularly on the ninth of Av, which is when the temples were destroyed. Rabbi Ginsberg points out that the word for lion, which is aria, equals 216. And the word gevora also equals 216. Gevora is the word for contraction and limitation, the placing of boundaries, and the act of judgment, and even punishment, and even destruction. A lot in that word gavora. Mostly it means to hem in and place boundaries on. Can mean to destroy. So the hush of the month, or the bodily ability that's anciently associated with Av, is hearing. 
And this is connected to the tribe of the month, which is Simeon or Shimon, which comes from the root to hear, like Shema, Shimon, Shema. Simeon or Shimon, by the way, it does have a connection to Judah, which is the tribe of the first month, in that Judah is given a territory that surrounds Simeon. So those two tribes are linked, just like these two months are linked. Well, this hearing idea is an important thread in the essence and energy of the month of Av. It is a month for God to speak with the clarity and even harshness um, to speak what we need to hear, as difficult as that may be to hear. Our part is to both listen with humility and to begin to obey. In Hebrew, the idea of hearing implies not just physically hearing, but also doing the work of understanding, processing what you're hearing, and even more than that, obedience. To hear is to obey in Hebrew. Well, on the more practical side, uh, this is also a month to focus on bringing correction and balance to our hearing, meaning we should try to form better habits now regarding what enters our ears. We've come to take words lightly, both our own words and the words we allow into our ears. In Grant and Robin's talk this week, Robin was sort of lamenting how it is that we've lost the awareness of the importance of the words that come out of our mouths. And at the same time, we've become spiritually illiterate. So to sort of build on what Robin is saying there, we've become numbed to the harsh words that are filling our world and our discussion these days that bring death. And humanity in general is having a lot of trouble recognizing the great value of life-giving words. So in other words, we don't recognize the death of, of those kinds of words, and we don't recognize the life of those kinds of words. We can do better with what we are allowing to enter our ears. We can and we must, because the words out there are largely not getting softer and kinder. Now, I know that we need people to speak truth, right? Unvarnished truth. But on the other hand, all of them. We need all of them to speak truth in love without the mocking tone, for example, that we so often find. It's the love part that's missing uh, from the truth that, because there are people speaking truth, you know. But um, so we have this practical aspect to the month, working on what we literally allow into the portals of our ears, right? That goes into us, into our souls. But moving back to the earlier point about hearing, um, the earlier point about hearing, which is that in this month, where God is apt to discipline us, we are working on hearing in the sense of focusing on hearing the rebuke of God now. If we want to live, if we want life, we don't close our ears to the harsh reality that we sometimes need to hear. And it's easier to hear words of rebuke and correction when we know that the one speaking loves us and has our best interests in mind. So as we listen, we also need to remind ourselves This is coming from someone who created me and loves me and wants the best for me. So we go into this season 
understanding that God's rebuke has at its heart compassion. He doesn't want to see us wallow in our sin. He doesn't want to see us weak and wobbly and always slipping and falling away and being separated from him. And he doesn't want to see us taking life from each other and consuming each other like animals do. His chastening is the vessel for his compassion. And so Rabbi Ginsburg fascinatingly uses more numbers to show that God's compassion is the root of his discipline. He adds to the insight that, that Arya, lion, and Gevura, Gevura, both equal 216. So he adds to that insight that 216 is a multiple of hesed, which is loving kindness, which is just kind of amazing to think about. Hesed equals 72, and 3 times 72 is 216. So Gevura, God's discipline and restriction, even destruction, is composed of three compassions, right? Three chesed's. And to go even a step further, Rabbi Ginsburg connects the three compassions to the building of three temples, which is kind of mind-blowing and maybe a little bit too much for me to process right now, but um, just so many connections, fascinating what they do with the numbers there. In the end, the month of Av is a very powerful one. There's a lot of power in this month, and it's a lot of potential for both good and evil, both possibilities. And and it really hinges on whether we're being humble and whether we're fighting against fear, fighting against fear that causes us to make poor decisions. So the massive potential of the month can be seen in another event to happen on the 9th of Av, right? It's not just the destruction of the temples, but it's an event that's actually mentioned in this Torah portion, and that's the evil report of the 10 spies. According to Jewish tradition, that evil report was given on the 9th of Av. And so the 12 spies arrived back at camp at a vulnerable time in this month of Av here for the nation. A moment where God was poised to either unleash his Gevura wrath on the Canaanites if Israel was faithful or on Israel if Israel was unfaithful. And so they arrived back at camp carrying poles weighed down with the physical evidence of the goodness of the land. And all the people could see that it was a good land indeed. But then the spies opened their mouths and the people turned their ears to them. And they made choices for how they would hear the report. And so we call it an evil report. But in fact, there were two sides to their statement though the people chose to hear only one. The faithful spies said, we can do this. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land. The people will be like bread for us. We can, we can just eat them up. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't fear them. And Moses himself adds, and this is what we learn in this chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses chimes in, and says, do not be in dread or afraid of them. So again, fear, fear, fear. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, says Moses, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way 
that you went until you came to this place. And so Moses is also appearing to sight. He's saying, you saw this. You saw these things. So let your hearing be informed by your sight that God has given you first. But the other story um, resonated more deeply in the fearful hearts of the people because fear was there. So on the one hand, two spies and Moses have the, the good story. Uh, but the other story is what really resonated with the people because they were fearful. And so the 10 said, it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And above all, what the people chose to hear was this. The people who live there are strong. There are giants there. We saw the sons of Anak there. They looked at us and saw grasshoppers. And we felt like grasshoppers too. And so my point here is that either way, they chose to hear, you know, either way they were choosing to hear what both of these sides were saying, either choice led would have led to vast, vast consequences. God sets us up in this month for some vast consequences one way or the other way. And so either they would have gone directly into the land under Moses or they would suffer in the wilderness under, you know, they would suffer under this almost sort of a curse in the wilderness until the Midbar itself swallowed up their bodies, which is what they were fearing would happen in the land. Av is a month that carries great possibilities either way, and we need to listen carefully now, particularly with ears controlled by faith and peace and joy. Now, after all of that, let me add that the energy of the month shifts abruptly after the ninth of Av to what we might call a much more clearly positive energy. One of the most joyous times in the whole calendar is somehow birthed out of the ashes of the burning temples. It's called Tuba Av, and it's on the 15th of Av. So we have the ninth of Av, just six days later, less than a week later, is the 15th of Av, Tuba Av. And so anciently, this was one of the most joyous days of the year, a day for finding a suitor. The unmarried young women would borrow a white dress, and they were borrowed dresses because that way the, the young men wouldn't know your sort of economic status. So kind of leveled the playing field. It just wasn't an issue. And so dressed in white like this, the maidens would go out into the vineyards to dance and the young unmarried men would go to look for a bride. And so I think one of the lessons to take um, from the closeness of these two days, Tuba'av and Tishba'av, which is the ninth of Av, is that we should never waste an opportunity God gives us to humble ourselves, because ashes are very fertile, and from the ashes spring vibrant and healthy new life. If we are disciplined, and we truly hear if, if God disciplines us and we really open our ears and we get down on our knees and we listen. And we say, Lord, indeed we have sinned. Indeed we have caused death. Indeed we have bludgeoned each other and starved each other and treated each other coldly. We sit in our blood and ashes if we open ourselves to what he says to us in the three weeks and on the ninth of Av in particular, 
then we place ourselves in a position to be lifted up. Lower yourself down. Now you're in a position where you can be lifted up. The ninth of Av is not just a time to fast. It's a time to listen and to humble ourselves before him. The fast is a full day, by the way. Some of the, most of the fasts are half day, but the ninth of Av is a full day fast. And this year it begins this upcoming Wednesday night, the 26th, and ends Thursday night, the following night. So there's a fascinating Jewish tradition that the Messiah is born on Tishbaav, the ninth of Av, while the temple is burning. Imagine what it would have been like, maybe something like this happened, that a mother went into labor while the Romans were lighting that first torch that brought the flame against the precious cedar of the temple. And as that child comes into the world with a wail, the night is lit up behind that mother by the burning of the connection between heaven and earth, right? That neck, that, that connecting point up in flames while that child is being born. And the parents would have to wonder in such a bittersweet moment, what kind of a world this child is being born into? Well, Shimona Zukernik says that the, the teaching that the Messiah is born on the ninth of Av is not necessarily literal, but somehow the idea of the Messiah is born from the smoking ruins of the temple. And isn't it the case that when the world presents us with the image of hopelessness, with the gray stench of death, what else do we have in that moment but to urge from deep within this urge from deep within us to calmly close our eyes and say, Lord, it is too much. Bring the Messiah now. How can we bear this? We long for the return of Yeshua. Well, one more thought here. This month isn't easy for God either. I happened to read a moving passage this week in Hosea that I thought was particularly appropriate for the month of Av, this month of Leo. In Hosea 11, God actually calls himself a lion. He decides he won't destroy Ephraim, right? But Ephraim comes to represent the northern kingdom of Israel. And even though they deserved it, he says, I'm not going to destroy them. And he has said a little earlier in the passage that he will not send Ephraim back to Egypt. That's a place that Israel is never to return to. But instead, He will allow the king of Assyria to be their king. And so I'm going to read a few verses and listen for the great tension here. God is expressing a tension in God's own heart. In the end, God decides to give the gift of life. And so it says this, My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. This is God saying this. God is saying, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For... I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, 
He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. And that's Hosea 11, 7 to 11. Well, moving forward now, let's do just a little more work to fit the month of Av into the flow of the calendar by reaching back to the third month in Shavuot. And we'll move forward from there. So it's one thing for us to become personally responsible to the Torah in the third month and then to struggle with that and stumble in the ensuing days and weeks and for us to see see our own stumbles and be humbled by that. And remember that the hush of last month, the fourth month, was seeing, sight. And we talked about the longest day of the year, right? The, the summer solstice and of God shining a bright light on our lack of ability and lack of heart that leads to sin. But it's one thing for us to see that, you know, to see what God is showing us ourselves as God shines that light for us to see. And it's another for God to articulate that and bring consequences that we feel. Consequences we feel. Consequences that bring restriction into our lives. You know, what does the Jewish soul feel when they ponder the destruction of the temples? And so this is God elevating our sense of our sin to another level and motivating us to repentance from another level. So we listen carefully now because, for one thing, an openness to reprimand helps the one who's reprimanding to not have to be so stern. So imagine you're scolding and punishing a teenager, and that teenager's attitude is, please tell me, you know, instruct me so that I can be better at this. I'm genuinely sorry, and I'm listening, right? Has that ever happened? I guess it's probably happened in world history somewhere. I don't remember myself ever saying words like that to my parents when they were punishing me. <laughs> but, um, but the one punishing, are you going to um, have to raise your voice quite so loud if that's the way your reprimand is being received? So beyond this, we also listen intently now because in the reprimand will be the communication of the straight path to healing and victory, exactly what we need to hear in the moment. God the Father is the parent who knows how to communicate to his children as only a parent does. Well, finally on Av, we can see something of the spiritual energy of the month being reflected in the physical land of Israel, in the climate there especially. This is the hottest period of the year in Israel, when the lack of rain at this time is most keenly felt. As we have said many times, that lack of rain reflects the separation of the heavens and the earth. The land yellows and cracks under the lash of the sun. Agriculturally, we are in the period of pruning of the vines, right? The geezer calendar tells us two months now for pruning. And um, we're also in the early harvest of the grapes. And so most of these grapes will be used for wine. So they're crushed immediately. The crushed grape symbolizes blood and death, which again is separation. So now we're bringing it, we're cutting the vines for one thing, pruning them. 
And for another thing, we are bringing in the first grapes and smashing them, right? But always as we focus on the death, which is what this month really is focused on, we cannot lose track of the new life. And this is beautifully pictured in the grape harvest, if we follow it down the road a little bit, down the calendar. So the point of the crushing of the grape, really, in the end, is joy. But it takes time, some time in the darkness to ferment. The best these grapes being harvested now and next month, the grape harvest is going to continue into next month. And so the best that they have to offer uh, will come about six months down the road, six months of aging, meaning their best product will be directly opposite on the calendar. So directly opposite these two months of Av and Elul are the months of Shevat and Adar, the 11th and 12th months, which puts us at what holiday and what connection to joy, right? Six months opposite puts us right near Purim, the holiday where wine plays a particular role in expressing the joy of darkness turned into light. And that wine, those grapes are being picked now for that wine that's consumed at Purim. And Purim's all about turning death into life. What looked like death, oh my goodness, suddenly God reverses it and it's life. It's it's light from the darkness and the candle that's lit at Hanukkah. So there's no detail of this world that God has not carefully orchestrated to speak forth the word, which is salvation. The sadness of Av, the separation, the death of Av, in a way that's expressed by the crushed grape. But that becomes the joy of Purim, expressed as this grape juice is transformed into wine. What's required is a trip into the darkness of the wine cellar over a dark winter. But be patient. And as the cold breaks and as the sun begins to climb on the horizon again in the early spring, as the light returns, bring that wine out into the light and rejoice in the transformation God has brought about. Well, after setting the stage in a general way regarding the season, let's do a little more specific connecting to the portion. I want to focus on three ideas in the portion And so forgive me for doing this. I never really liked this when I would hear preachers do it before. But um, the three points that I want to connect to the portion in light of of, what we've just learned about of, the three points I want to connect to the portion all start with R, the letter R, and they are rebuke, redo, and realize. Rebuke, redo, and realize. Three R's connected to the portion in light of the month of Av. So first, the rebuke of the season of Av is evident from the beginning of this first Torah portion. The first Torah portion we're reading in this month. The sages have seen strong elements of rebuke from Moses um, to the people in this portion. Rebuke that is sometimes subtle and even gentle. And rebuke that is also at times quite clear and forceful. So, for example, Rashi mentions that the place names that are mentioned in the first verse of the book, which we read earlier, those place names um, 
actually set the stage for Moses speaking out the whole of the book, and they represent, according to Rashi, times when Israel angered God. So Moses is subtly bringing up these times when, uh, Mo- when the children of Israel angered God. And so that's a subtle rebuke, but that's the geographic context that's being given for the entire book. Well, in the next verse, so this is chapter 1, verse 2, we're told that it's 11 days' journey from Horeb to the edge of the land in Kadesh Barnea. Moses is addressing the people who have once again arrived at the edge of the land, but 38 years later, right, this next generation, they're back at that edge of the land, but it's 38 years later. So in other words, again, we have another subtle rebuke here. What should have taken 11 days took 38 years. And the tone of the reproach continues in the portion, and to some degree for the next several portions, and even kind of all through the book of Deuteronomy, although I wouldn't say it's primarily rebuke. I think it's a little more matter-of-fact than than just the wagging of the finger there. But... um, Moses is bringing up failures here in this portion from the past, right? So it's not just so subtle. And he's saying, don't do that again. Um, He's saying, you yourselves have lived through the consequences. Learn from those mistakes. Stand on your parents' shoulders. You have the benefit, Moses might say to them, of having walked with God your whole lives, right? You were born in this situation. And you walked with God a lot longer by this point than your parents did when they made these decisions and these mistakes. So you can do better because you've been given more. So the Kehoe Comish describes Moses' artful approach here to reproaching the people. He says, or it's, sorry, the Kehoe Comish says, Moses' rebuke is an object lesson in the proper approach to repentance. Although Moses did not omit any detail that could have driven home the need for teshuva, he took care to mention each detail, firstly, as vaguely as possible. Why? In order to preserve the people's dignity and self-esteem, says the Kehoe Komish. And secondly, always in the context of their great promise, emphasizing how far they fell short of their potential rather than how terribly they failed. Continues the Quixote Comus, this perspective coming as it does at the opening of the book sets the tone for the rebuke that will continue throughout the entire book of Deuteronomy, even including the dire threats we will hear in its course. Candid and brutal honesty, couched in terms that nonetheless convey deep and sincere respect, respect for the people, is the surest way to encourage both ourselves and others to repent, to experience true teshuva, and thereby renew ourselves and our relationship with God in the deepest way possible. So the Kehoe Komish is saying there, number one, he He's a little bit vague at first, but he doesn't pull any punches. But he, he's talking about the people's great potential. It's all given in light of their great potential. And so 
I think what the Kehoe Commerce is saying here is very true. If you want to help to open someone's ears to rebuke, be subtle. Be a little subtle at first, right? They're just going to take offense to if you dive right in. And above all, let the person know that you truly see him or her. You recognize the good in them beneath the mess-ups, beneath that flesh. And you see their great potential. So this is good advice for effectively bringing correction. And we see Peter in our Acts study doing this. When he says in his second sermon in Acts 3, Basically, you killed the Messiah and demanded that a murderer go free, but I know you acted in ignorance, says Peter. And he says, repent, you are the sons of the prophets and the heirs to the covenant, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Peter is not holding back here, he says, you you murdered the Messiah, but he's telling it You know, so he's telling it like it is, but at the same time, he's pointing to their great potential as descendants of Abraham and heirs to the promises God made with the patriarchs. He's letting them know that he sees them, right? I see you. He sees their inner being that God created good beyond whatever led them, whatever whatever fleshly covering led them to do what they did to the Messiah beyond that. He's looking deeper than that, and he's bringing that out, and that's a reassurance to them, and that opens their ears. And so Paul, like Peter, um, walks this same fine line of rebuke, for example, with the Corinthians, and he walks it very carefully and expertly, both rebuking them and expressing his great love for them and his faith in them that they will right the ship. Well, rebuke is closely connected to repentance, and so let's Move along to the second point I want to emphasize with this Torah portion is redo. This generation gets a redo. And so the book in general of Deuteronomy has many connections to the idea of second chances. For one thing, the entire book is named for the retelling of the Torah, the telling of it a second time. It's being told again because standing in front of Moses as he's giving this speech is Israel 2.0, the next generation who will have a second chance to go into the land. And so I want to make a a slightly more distant connection to this idea of second chances here. If this is the second giving of the Torah, we can see in this book a kind of veiled reference to a second covenant. Moses is bringing this generation to the point of renewing the covenant. And we see that happening explicitly in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy. And so we need to see here in this book a picture of a second covenant, a renewed covenant. And so I'm using the language of the new covenant here. There are echoes here in this book of the covenant that will not be broken. This generation will, in fact, be faithful to the covenant under Joshua. In this vein of seeing an allusion to the new covenant in the book, Rabbi Sachs, he's not making that direct connection there to the new covenant, but he points out that the entire book of Deuteronomy follows the form of an ancient Middle Eastern covenant, a treaty. Archaeologists have discovered ancient treaties between kingdoms in the Middle East dating to even before Moses' time, which contain the following steps. Now, you don't have to memorize these, but just 
Um, this is what Rabbi Sachs says. He says, each of these treaties that they discovered and have discovered have these steps, a preamble, a historical review, stipulations of the treaty, deposition of the copies of the covenant, curses and blessings, and witnesses. So Rabbi Sachs points out how Devarim follows this same structure. This book of Deuteronomy has the same structure of preamble, historical review, stipulations of the treaty, deposition of the copies of the covenant, curses and blessings, and witnesses. And so the whole book is a covenant. And we can think of it as a renewed covenant for a second generation, right? A lot of connections here to the new covenant. But this renewed covenant is not just happening for this historical generation of Israel. We're reading this book at a certain time in the year, the second covenant. And so we too are coming to that moment in the calendar before too long. It's not long ago um, away that um, this time that we will connect to the enacting of the new covenant, it happens every year, every year in the seventh month. Now we're entering the fifth month, but in the seventh month, we will still be reading the book of Deuteronomy in the seventh month. So this book provides the Torah context for all of the fall feasts. It is at that time that Moses brings down from the mountain the second set of tablets that represent the new covenant, according to tradition. Um, according to tradition, he actually brought that second set down on Yom Kippur. And it's on the day of Yom Kippur that Yeshua presents his blood in the heavenly holy of holies, the blood that inaugurates the new covenant. So these connections between the new covenant and the seventh month, and especially Yom Kippur, and these connections between the New Covenant and the book of Deuteronomy, which we are reading from now all the way through the seventh month. So as we're reading in the book of Deuteronomy, let's be thinking of how the book connects to the second chance that we are given in the form of the New Covenant in Yeshua's blood. Well, lastly here, we'll move on to the third R. Um, that I wanted to emphasize in, in Devarim and in the, in the book of Deuteronomy in general. And that is the word realization, realization of the goal. You get to the goal. Um, well, what is the goal? In many ways, the goal is for us to, in faith, reach down into the stuff of earth and use it for spiritual purposes, including our own bodies, to make a home here for God. Devarim is the last book of the five. So we're dealing with some a last element here. Um, and so it's going to carry the flavor of end times. And it's going to carry the flavor of maturity in our walk. We're not at the end of the calendar now, but as we read through Devarim, we will come to the end of the first journey in the year, the first seven-month journey we're going to be reading this last book of the Torah while we're walking through the last month of the first journey in the year, the first seven-month journey in the year. And so we're seeing the spiritual lived out through the stuff of earth here, right? We've got to be focusing on how this stuff comes to be a vessel 
for spirituality when we're looking at end times and final elements. How does the stuff get used for God and his kingdom? Well, in that vein, let me point out that it's meaningful that Moses is speaking out Devarim in his own words rather than transcribing God's words for the people. At the end, at the place of maturity, the bride steps up to bring forth from her own being and her own will, her own intellect, her own emotional makeup. Um, And what she's doing is she's using all of that to bring a service offering that is unique to her as she utilizes her body, and her possessions and resources. It is the Torah she is expressing as she does that, but she's doing that from the depths of her own heart in a way that only she can, in her own physical context, in a way that only she can. That's what Moses is doing here in his restatement of the Torah. He's even including a bit of commentary along the way, especially in terms of the giants who were but who are no more. In other words, Moses colors his restatement, right? The bride brings her personality and what's needed in the moment. And so Moses colors his restatement of the Torah by emphasizing for his specific audience what they need to hear. Your fathers feared the giants in the land, but I want you to see, Israel, that there have been many giants in these lands before. And if God decides to give land to someone like Esau or Lot and his sons, God will work to take down the giants, right? All these parenthetical things we're seeing in the first portion of Deuteronomy. It's about giants, the giants who were. Moses is saying, don't sweat the giants. There may be some in Canaan. Right? You'll encounter a few, and we see David even slaying Goliath. But there were also giants in Moab before, but they are no more. And together with God's help, you know, Moses is saying, we took down Sihon and the giant Og. Moses gears his repetition of the Torah to the people God gave him to serve. This is what the bride does at the end as she interprets the Torah for her own time and place. And so let me point out that in some fascinating ways, Moses is a picture of the bride. Moses, the bride. We don't really think of that very much. The bride reflects the groom. And I'm using that word reflect in a very specific way, a mirror reflection, And so she is a mirror reflection for him. She is called his Azer Konegdo, his helpmate opposite to him. Moshe, the word for Moses, backwards is Hashem. And Rabbi Trugman points this out. And so Hashem is the name. And we use that a lot of times when we don't want to say the name of God directly. We say Hashem, the name meaning the tetragrammaton, yod heh vav heh. And so Moshe backwards is Hashem. So even deeper, Rabbi Trugman says that when Moses asks God at the burning bush, who shall I say sent me? God answers, I will be that which I will be. 
which is a name that God is giving for himself. And so in Hebrew, it's just three words. And those three words, says Rabbi Trugman, add up to 450, oh, sorry, 543. So five, four, three. Those three words that mean I will be that which I will be. Well, what does Moshe equal? The name Moses. Moses equals the opposite, the mirror opposite. Three, four, five. 345. Right? I will be that which I will be. Five, four, three. Moses, three, four, five. So in some ways then, Moses represents the human bride who is the complementary image of God and his helpmate to bring forth the living word on earth. So speaking of this movement toward making the spiritual concrete, the word devarim means not only words, but also things. Devarim means words and things. The word, you know, this idea of word or language is kind of the middle ground, the soulish expression of the spirit, right? The thought is in our spirit, soulishly, we, you know, we express it through our words. But the thing is more tangible than that. It's the tangible manifestation of that word, the physical side. And so we're moving here from this middle to this physical, from the word to the thing. Israel has been given the word from on high, and Moses is preparing them to really be able to live it out in its fullness in the land. They're about to make the word real and tangible. He's preparing them to start living the life of the stationary temple eventually and the priesthood and the cities of refuge and the pilgrimage festivals and the leaving of the corners of the fields for the poor and the jubilee and all the rest that God has communicated to the people about how to live in the land. And may that come again soon, all of the, uh, the, the whole of the Torah in the land of Israel, right? We can pray for that. But even in the very name, Devarim, we're seeing the word becoming the thing. And this is what Israel is about to do when, is, when Moses is taken from them. And so we see an allusion to this idea of, all right, enough of the spiritual already. It's time to bring it down to earth. We see that in a fascinating verse in chapter 2. So see if you can hear that idea in these verses. It's like this. Then the Lord said to me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward. Well, they've been traveling in the mountains long enough. What are the mountains? They are spiritual. The elevations are spiritual, right? The valleys are more physical. They've been traveling in the mountains long enough, God says, in the spiritual territory. Turn northward. What is the north? It's the direction of darkness and physicality, right? The showbread was on the north side. The menorah is on the south side in the holy place. And so the north is the direction of the physical and of darkness. But you see, when we turn to the darkness, that's our chance to master it and cleanse it and use it for spiritual purposes. The embrace of the darkness and the truly spiritual life go hand in hand. The life of actually putting the spiritual into practice. 
Well, lastly here today, let's turn our focus <coughs> directly to Yeshua. And so to do that, let's circle back to the discussion about the month of Av. It's fascinating that the Jewish people have the tradition that we mentioned earlier that the Messiah is born on the ninth of Av, or as Shimona Zukernik put it, the idea of the Redeemer is born at this time. During this period of the three weeks, the Jewish people focus a lot on the Messianic age. They teach about it, you know, at this point in the calendar because they recognize that the suffering on earth and the suffering of the Jewish people will only end when the Messiah comes. His coming is closely connected in the Jewish mind to the rebuilding of the third temple and a general healing of the world. Remember, the ninth of Av is about the destruction of the temple. And so with the coming of the Messiah and the Messianic age will come the rebuilding of the temple. Well, what would be a little harder for them to see is that this heart cry for the Messiah at this time is followed every year by his arrival in the fall. Again, we have evidence pointing us to Yeshua's incarnation, the birth of the Messiah, near Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. At the low point in the year, in Av, we look around us at the devastation of the temple and all the destruction wrought by our inability to fully live up to the Torah because there's a problem in our hearts. We don't have Torah on our hearts. And we cry out, Lord, save us. Save us. Give me the heart I need to stay faithful to you. Give me that heart so that I won't sin against you and be separated from you like this again. It's the low point we need to reach, you know, we need to reach down to that low point before God opens the doorway for the Messiah to step through. And each year, the trumpets of Rosh Hashanah announce that our King Yeshua is coming. Get ready. Get ready. He's coming. The King is coming. On Yom Kippur, Yeshua does a work in the heavenlies to cover his bride on his way down. And on Sukkot, he arrives to dwell with us. And in the life we go on to live with him, after Sukkot, we are given the heart that we cried out for, the Torah on the heart, and the ability to keep the covenant faithfully to its fullest degree, the fruit of the new covenant. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. There's a link to an outline posted below the video. May God bless us in this season of Av with a great humility toward our leaders, right? The beginning of this book of Devarim focused on the authority structure that Moses put in place. So may he, great, may he grant us um, humility toward our leaders at this time and toward God himself um, who brings loving correction May he open our eyes to hear the rebuke that we need to hear now. And two, may we hear his voice telling us to not fear the giants in our lives because he fights with us against them. May we fully trust in the thorough depth of salvation purchased by our Messiah. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.